Welcome to the Columbia Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're so excited to share this weekend's message with you from Dr. Jim Balkum, our senior pastor. We hope it encourages you, inspires you, and helps you grow in your faith as a whole life disciple. Now, enjoy the message. Hey, happy Pentecost, Columbia, and happy birthday to the Church of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Elijah, for helping us to mark this day. And for all those Colombians, we, it's so cool to be a part of a church that can do that. We could have done five times that many languages with people who are from the life of Colombia. So to see your brothers and sisters do that is, is really cool. I'm actually going to preach the message that fits today next week. I think it's the right conclusion to this series. I thought about making it Pentecost Sunday, uh, but next week I want to talk about how this belief I've been talking about impacted the way the church saw itself, the early church, and how we see ourselves. And so we'll be in the book of Acts next week. And this week, I sort of want to set the prelude for that with another passage that I've kind of saved for the end of this series. I'll be in the Gospel of John. And the interesting thing is, I could have, as you'll see, I could have spent the whole series in the Gospel of John, and it would have been slightly different. Before I get there, uh, let, me, uh, let me just uh, ask you if you've ever seen this stuff before. Do you know what this is? So look, you know I love super glue. Everybody loves to remind me that I've said that a few times, but I also uh, love something called JB Weld. How many of you have ever used JB Weld? Let me see your hands if you have. It came out in 1969 when I was five years old. A guy from Texas, a Texas, a Texan named Sam Bonham had a car shop. And sometimes he needed to do what he called cold welding. That is, you know, if you had to, to get to something and weld it, that takes time. You've got to have an experienced welder. You've got to have a lot of equipment. Sometimes he needed a quick fix. And so he wanted a glue that would work. He tried everything and could find nothing. So he partnered with Texas A&M University. Any Aggies out there? None in here today. We have a lot of Aggies in the church, so I just wondered about that. But he partnered with the the chemical lab uh, at Texas A&M in 1969. And he said, I need to come up with something that is as strong as a weld or even potentially stronger than a weld. And what came out of that was J.B. Weld. Now, here's the way it works. A traditional glue wouldn't do it because a traditional glue cures as it meets with the air. So this is how super glue works, how most glue work. That is, the, the oxygen hits them, the air hits them, and then, and then they cure. But we needed something with a way stronger cure, and so what was developed was what we now take for granted, a, a two-part compound, an epoxy, if you will, where one piece is sort of the cement portion, but it's activated by a separate, uh, the red tube. Whatever that, whatever's in there. I'm not a chemist, so I don't know. You mix these two things together. They change color, sort of. One of them's white, one of them's black. You get this gray stuff, and you can put it on almost anything, and so help me, it really is. I'm sure there's a welder in the congregation. Fred, if you're out there listening to me, don't argue with me. It's almost as strong as a weld. I mean, it'll do the job a lot of the time. So recently, I had something that was broken this past Christmas, in fact, and I said to my family, I got to get some JB Weld. And so I headed out to McLean Hardware, my local hardware store, brought back this JB Weld. And my son-in-law, who was in the army, said to me, you know, we have this stuff in the field. Every time you talk about super glue, I want to tell you, we don't have super glue out in the field, but JB Weld, we have these big gallon containers of that stuff. He said, you can literally put a tank back together in the field and you can hold it long enough to get it to the repair shop. So he said, this is this 
this is good stuff. Now, you may be wondering why I'm talking about J.B. Weld, besides the fact that you always need a little good advice, you know, and I like it. And the answer is that it takes one compound to activate another. And activation is what I'm talking about here, so I think this serves as a good illustration. God gives us faith, but it is by our discipleship that we activate that faith, our whole life discipleship. It is by our effort that we activate faith into what the Bible calls belief. Now, I'm going to deal with this a lot today because it's been really fun communicating with some of you, and I want to make sure that I respond. But let me say that the book of Ephesians is a wonderful illustration of this. So we get to Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. Paul says, you know this, this, these scriptures probably. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope in which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who, what? Pistua, believe, a form of the word pistua. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, he's given you this faith, but if you want to access this power, this resurrection power, on your part, there is a step required, and not just one step either, but one step after another, after another, after another. So Paul keeps dealing with this. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, this is the more famous piece. Of course, this is the piece that sent Martin Luther off his way, and, and this is what which is what impressed Augustine. So we get in, in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, pistis, faith, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now that's a fascinating scripture, isn't it? And I often hear people proof text one part of that scripture without holding the whole thing in tension. So the faith is a gift, and it is by the faith that you're saved. That is the thing you cannot create for yourself. That is the thing that holds the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But as God's handiwork, you are created in order to do good works that were laid out for you from the beginning of time. That's your part, is to take that faith, activated in your life and make it what I believe the scriptures call belief. I believe this is what believing is all about. Hear what I just said? Believe this is believing. This is what I think the scriptures are teaching us and it's just come across so powerfully to me as I've studied more and more in this series. So Paul gets to Ephesians 5. He's starting to conclude the book and in 5, 15 through 17, he says, be careful then how you Live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Don't be fools, but understand what the Lord's will is, his good, his pleasing, his perfect will. Now, you can see our part, and what I would suggest to you that a way to speak about believing, pistuo in the Bible, which I'll show you in a moment, is that faith plus discipline or in the words, the verbiage of the church, faith plus whole life discipleship equals believing. So believing is the process of applying our effort 
to the activation of the faith that has been given by God's effort alone. And that partnership is what we call whole life discipleship or what we may call believing. It's really a powerful idea. My good friend Chris Clifford and fellow pastor here on staff, he grew up in a church in beautiful downtown Palmyra, Virginia, which they like to say is close to Charlottesville, but it ain't that close. So anyway, this this little community, Palmyra, has a church in the middle of it in which Chris grew up, in which he was discipled. One of my best friends was pastor of it when Chris was there, a guy just a little bit older than I am, and now another good friend of both of ours is pastor there, and this church is called Effort Baptist Church. Effort. And I, I used to think, well, there has to be a place called Effort. But no. The people who founded this church founded it after the word effort because they intended to exert a lot of effort. Now, this has led to a lot of ribbing and joking of Chris and of my friend John and my friend Ben, who's there now, saying, you know, you people, shouldn't you have named this Grace or Mercy or, or, or Faith Baptist Church? Effort. Do you believe it happens by your own effort? But you know what I've decided is it's not a bad name for a church because we don't create the grace piece. We don't create the mercy piece. We don't create the faith piece. The Holy Spirit does that work for us, but we do have to make an effort. Otherwise, we'd never activate our faith and become what the Bible calls believers. The word pistuo, to believe, to entrust. I noticed reading the New Testament in the Greek earlier this year that it was applied to belief in God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit, or to belief in the resurrection or something that demonstrates that, and that that was nearly a universal rule. Now, because I've said that, I've opened Pandora's box for a certain type of person in the life of Columbia, and that person is the person who loves to play Stump the Preacher. And Stump the Preacher is actually pretty fun, I think, unless you're the preacher. So I think it's actually a fun game. And I've enjoy, I really enjoy these conversations. And especially if, if I lead someone to dig deeper for me, I've done my job. And so when somebody says to me, I've been digging, 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 and I, I'm not so sure about what you're saying, I love that conversation. And by the way, it is quite possible that I should say something that's wrong or that is slightly off base, so I appreciate this. But let me say that I believe we can say this is a rule in Scripture. It's not that the rule is never, ever marginally broken. And this is where I get in trouble here because I'm not a precisionist. You know, I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a scientist. I'm a pastor. I love literary works. And so when we say there's a literary rule, We're not saying that it never, ever is broken. We're saying that it seems to be the way that the authors thought of it. So what I'm saying is that the authors of the Bible, of the New Testament, didn't really think to use the word pistuo or believing unless they were talking about belief in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the resurrection, the life, whatever, so that they were were proving it. There are there, are, there is one that I can find what I would call exception to this rule. I want to see if you can find it, so I'm not going to tell you where it is. Some of you have already found it. And it is a place where Paul is expressing something that he thinks about a particular church. And he talks about this church being divided, 
And at the end of that, he says, I'm prone to believe it. What's interesting in that case, it's the only case I can find where Paul, even Paul, uses the word pistuo in such a way to speak about his opinion. But he modifies the word. He uses a word that says, some English translations say, I partially believe it. I prefer the translation, I half believe it. So even then, he modifies the rule. There's a place that some of you have identified where they say, see here, demons believe. This only to me proves my point. Demons absolutely believe there is a God and they have activated their faith, their understanding through pure, unadulterated rebellion. And that's one of the places where the scriptures say it is possible to misbelieve and this is the whole point of the sermon series. In our culture today, I believe many people are misbelieving, activating faith in the wrong things to their detriment, to the detriment of the church, and to the detriment of society. But one of the most interesting places where the word pistis, which is the noun form, pistuo is the verb form, so you see this word and you can see the connection of the two, where these two are tied together is Romans chapter 14, verses one through four. And again, I think this passage really illustrates my point. Paul says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now, let me pause for a second and say it's intriguing to me that the author of the NIV uses in that verse and the next verse, or in the next verse, rather, uses the word faith because the word in the Greek is pistuo. In other words, what really it says is one person's belief allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Now, hold on to that for a second. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. <clears throat> now, this is a really fascinating passage, but what's, oops, I've kicked out here. But what's really fascinating about it is verse 14 too. This is the literal translation of the Greek of that passage. I won't show you the Greek, but you're welcome to go look at it. One, in fact, believes to eat all things. Another, however, because of their weakness, vegetables eat. Little Yoda going on there in the Greek, okay? One, however, being weak, vegetables eats. Now, what I think Paul is saying here is that one person's belief in God, their activated faith is so strong, the food laws no longer have meaning for them. It is now the law of Christ's love that governs them. But another person, because they are weak and have not activated their faith in the same way, needs to continue to follow the food laws to feel good. They need to stick with their religious preconceptions. This is important to today's lesson about how things work. Now, my suggestion to you is that our preconceptions and even sometimes our religious traditions get in the way of our complete belief of believing completely, of being all in, of becoming mature in the faith. Paul continues here. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master. Servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. What's intriguing here is that later on in verse 22, as Paul concludes this idea, the NIV uses the word belief when the word is pistis in the Greek. It's the word faith. And what Paul then says is, your faith 
should be held between you and God. It is between you and God, this faith that he's given to you. But if you are a person who has activated your faith, then you will not judge other people on disputable matters. Now, this is a good lesson for the church. The word that's used here in the Greek is the word from which we get the English dialogue. So it says we shall not judge each other based on our worldly dialogue, on the things we bring in here from out there. Now, I will grant you it is really hard to distinguish and to discover what is a disputable matter and what is not. That's open for some debate. That is, what is central to the practice of our belief and what is not? But I can tell you this, many people make things central that simply are not. They are disputable. They are no big deal. I have one woman that told me recently, I, I know she's not even watching because she doesn't believe we should be broadcasting these, uh, these services. And she also, however, she must have watched at least once because she says she will not come back to worship until, this is the other service, not this one, until Butch King gets that red keyboard off the platform. She told me that it's ungodly. Now, I'm like, you may not like a red keyboard on the platform. I mean, that's your personal preference, but I'm relatively certain it's a disputable matter. I'm pretty sure that we can determine that's not central to the gospel. And there are lots of other things that aren't too. So the more mature you are in your belief, the more able you are to worship and believe in God, activate your faith with other believers without being separated by silly things. That's really important. Because can I tell you how many people have told me this past year, even in the life of Columbia, which I consider to be a magnificent and harmonious church, I have been separated from people who I would have called my closest friends this year in the life of the church because of our disagreement about how to respond to COVID. I've been separated from them by how we felt about things like masks, vaccinations, what society does, stuff like that. You need to trust me on this. It's a disputable matter. Common sense tells me how I feel about these things, but it's a disputable matter. Love of neighbor tells me what I should do with these things, my opinion. But I am not going to write someone off because they disagree with me on this because, friends, this is going to come and go. But the kingdom of God is forever. Now, I am pretty sure of this. There will be no masks in heaven. Okay. And not only that, but after the 28th, meaning next Sunday, you don't have to wear them either if you're vaccinated. Okay. Preconceptions can prevent us from believing completely. What are the preconceptions you have to get out of the way? That's the question. Now, important that I say this, because I think it's going to help you understand a passage that's really familiar to us. It's the story of the raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, verses 17 through 44. It's a long story, but there's one little portion of it, a conversation between Jesus and Martha, that is particularly interesting for our discussion of belief. Now, before I get to that, I've got to introduce you to something that I've waited until today to do, because I didn't want to confuse the matter. But there is a convention that John uses in his writing that none of the other gospel writers use. 
In fact, there's a convention that John uses in his writing that Paul doesn't really use, although sometimes he drifts over there a little bit. And the question we have to ask is, why does John put different words into Jesus' mouth sometimes than Matthew, Mark, and Luke? We can assume Jesus said the same thing, right? In Aramaic, by the way, spoken Hebrew, and that the apostles heard him, but when they come to write their gospels, remember, they're telling you what they remember he said. And this convention looks like this. It's pistuo or some form of pistuo, ice. Pistuo ice means to believe in. So it's pistuo ice, ice, baby, changes everything for John. The question is, why does John interject this? How come Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, never have Jesus talking about believing in, and John has it every other page? I mean, it's huge for him. And my contention would be that John was trying to reinforce something that Jesus was saying for the early church. Now, you may or may not know this, but we believe, we're relatively certain that Mark is the earliest gospel, and we're also relatively certain that Mark is much earlier than the gospel of John, and we're relatively certain, though there have been one or two scholars who disagreed, not many, that John is the last gospel, perhaps written as late as 96 or 94 AD. So it's the last gospel, and we're relatively certain that there is some stuff in the gospel of John that is responding to how the church has received. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Does this make sense? So there's been a gap of time. The gospels are out there. John's the last to write his gospel, and I do believe the apostle wrote the gospel. I do think that's true. I shouldn't say I believe. I think that's true. So I think that he wrote it, but I believe that he was looking at the church and how the church was practicing And he said, I need to reinforce some things before I'm gone. Remember, he's the only one of the apostles. He's he's on the island of Patmos. He's the only one that is not uh, that is not martyred. So he's writing towards the end of his life. So I think that John said this thing about belief. Some people are not completely understanding. What did Jesus mean? And as the latest gospel writer, I think he developed this convention of Jesus talking about believing in things. And this actually is language we understand, right? So we may use the word believe casually, though I'm trying not to do it. It's really hard to do. Any of you find this? Really hard to do. But we see some power in the word believe in. We see some different meaning in that statement. And it's going to show up in this story. So here we are, John 11, 17 through 44. I'll come back, by the way, to Jesus' conversation with the apostles before this in a moment. On his arrival, Jesus found that his good friend Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, long enough for his body to begin to deteriorate, long enough for the traditional understanding of death to have become a reality because his spirit is gone from him after three days in the preconception of Judaism. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, 
God will give you whatever you ask. Now let's pause for a second and recognize that Mary is clearly a believer. She has activated faith in such a way that she believes more about Jesus than even some of the apostles seem yet to. So Martha, I'm sorry, did I say Mary? So Martha has exercised her faith. She has become a believer. And the question becomes, does she believe adequately for the moment? One thing that has happened to me time and time again is that something has happened in my life that my belief could not equal. Has this happened to you before? Or am I the only one? I mean, I thought that I believed completely. I thought I understood what it meant to believe. I thought myself a relatively mature whole life disciple. And then something happened that was outside of my understanding of what I thought should in the world around me. Usually it's something that happens to someone I really love. It's something that rocks my world. It's something that challenges my belief. And what I discover in moments like this is my belief is not adequate to meet the moment. And whenever I discover that my belief is not adequate to meet the moment, that is an invitation for me to seek God more deeply and to become a more complete believer. That's why there are challenges in life, in my opinion. That's why there's pain in life, because unless we hit those walls, we will never find the edges of our belief. We will never find the edges of our conviction about Jesus and what he can accomplish. Now, the question is, Martha, this believer, is she a person whose belief is adequate to meet the moment? And the rest of the conversation is going to tell you that Jesus does not think so. So she says, Lord, now listen, that's good. She addresses Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know that God will do whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha opens her mouth and she gives a Sunday school answer before she stops to think what Jesus is talking about. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Just hold the phone for a moment. What is Martha doing? Well, Martha's a good Baptist girl. She'd been to Sunday school all her life. She knows the doctrine. By the way, she went to training union on Sunday night, which we were talking about yesterday in a funeral. We used to have such a thing as training union or whatever you called it, BYU or whatever it was, BYP or whatever it was. You'd come on Sunday night because you didn't get enough on Sunday morning, so you'd come on Sunday night, you'd eat a hot dog and learn a whole bunch of doctrine. Did you guys do that? Raise your hand if you did. So there's some of you. I knew Brent and Nancy raised their hand. Then we'd come back on Wednesday night so we could do missions. And that was to indicate that we were at church pretty much every day back in the day. And that wasn't just preachers' kids like me. A lot of us grew up that way. Martha had grown up in a home of deep and abiding faith, and she had learned all the good doctrine that a Jewish girl was supposed to learn. 
And one of the things she believed that was disputed among Jews is that which the Pharisees believed, and that is that there would be a resurrection on the last day. And that belief is a pretty amazing belief before Jesus' resurrection. So we should say this is impressive. She says, I believe, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. The problem here is not that Martha lacks belief, but that her belief is not mature enough to meet the moment. It is not complete enough to meet the challenge of her brother's death and Jesus' presence. She knows that there will be a resurrection somewhere way off in the future, but as she is unable to process the possibility of resurrection happening before that time, even though she has on at least one occasion been present when Jesus was talking about his own resurrection. She just can't fathom it. Lazarus has been dead four days. There's a reason Jesus waited four days. And that is so that she would get beyond the Jewish preconception of when his animation, reanimation, would become possibility. What she's doing here is stating a deep conviction, but it is a religious preconception, and it stands in the way of complete belief. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus said to her, would you just read this one with me? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. You heard that before? I start every funeral I do for a believer, for a Christian with that passage. To me, this is the mic drop moment in Jesus' ministry. Like if you tell me if there's one time he just said, he just dropped the mic, this is it. This is the thing he said that is just amazing. It's not that there will be a resurrection. It is not that resurrection will be a possibility. It's that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And anyone who believes in him, though they die, yet shall they live. And if we live by believing, by activating our faith, we will never die. This he says to Martha. And then he says to her, do you believe this? Have you gotten there? Is it adequate? Is your belief equal to the moment? Do you believe this? She responds, Yes, Lord. I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God, which is an amazing confession of faith, who is to come into the world. And she said this. She went back and she called her sister Mary outside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. Now, let me just say I think this is fascinating. To Jesus' face, she uses curio. She uses Lord. She calls him Lord. But when she turns away from Jesus and goes to get her sister, she says, Rabbi or teacher. I think that what Martha has found in Jesus is the great illuminator she's been looking for. 
the guru, the amazing teacher, the one who has shown her God in ways that nobody else has. I think that she expected that when the Messiah came, he would be a great teacher, and she has absorbed everything that he has taught her. She has tried to understand it all, but I don't think that Mary was yet to the place that she understood the power of the resurrection. And who can blame her because it hadn't happened yet? Neither had she seen her brother raised yet. The teacher is here, she says. He's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come out along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. Now, I want to know something here. I got a bone to pick with Jesus. How come Mary gets off the hook? Tell me. Why does Martha get challenged? And why does Mary get off the hook? I can give you the easy answer. She's the younger sister. She's the younger sibling. Martha gets pushed. Martha gets challenged. Mary comes out and says exactly the same thing. Not only that, but you can tell also that she's the younger sister because when Martha left the house, everybody thought she was self-sufficient. Nobody followed her because she might have been upset. But when Mary leaves the house, everybody runs after her. Okay. You older siblings, you know what I'm talking about here. It's not really old or younger, though it sometimes plays out this way. It's personality. Mary, all through the Gospels, when we see her, she has an easier time accepting things, just receiving them. She's a person who learns by her experience, I think. And Martha, on the other hand, is a little more hard-headed. Do you remember the story about how Martha was in the house and she's working to feed everybody and take care of everybody and Mary's somewhere else? And she goes, Mary, what is the matter with you? Get in here and help me. And Jesus said, Mary's out here trying to learn. You leave her alone. So once again, it's that same dynamic. These are two remarkably different people. Some people respond to challenge. Some people need to be challenged. I'll put myself in this camp. I don't learn unless I'm challenged. Are you like this too? I don't learn unless I'm confronted with something that I can't deal with. I don't learn unless somebody bothers to put something, fire a shot across my bow that caused me to think deeply. Am I right about what I think or even what I believe? It's just the way I am. And it's the way a lot of people are. But some people respond more to invitation. Challenge actually wounds them. It actually hurts their feelings. It causes them to get lost in, inside of themselves. And I think Mary is the more sensitive of the two. And Jesus just needs her to accept his invitation to come and see. Because after 
She sees what's about to happen. She is going to believe instantly. And one of the challenges, I think, for the church and for people like you and me, whole life disciples, is to be able to discern who around us will respond best to challenge and who will respond best to invitation because we're always practicing both at the same time, right? And frankly, if you're a parent, tell me, if you've got more than one kid, don't you have to figure out whether this particular child responds most to challenge or to invitation? I've got two kids. They're so different. One of them responds better to challenge. The other responds better to invitation. You can figure out which one is which. So Mary says the same thing. <coughs> Jesus is deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. I'm not going to preach on that today, but it's the shortest Scripture in the Bible, if you need it for a Bible drill, and you don't remember those either someday. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind man? If he opened the eyes of the blind man, could he not have kept this man from dying? And Jesus, once more deeply moved, he came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, like the one he would be buried in. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there'll be a bad odor for he's been there for four days. And Jesus said, did I not tell you? See this back and forth between Jesus and Martha? Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Why does Jesus keep challenging Martha? Because she keeps challenging Jesus. Because that's the way she learns. That's the way her belief is deepened. And this confrontation is necessary for her to understand that while she believes, she does not yet believe completely, and her belief does not equal the moment. Now, this is really important, and the reason I'm telling you it's important is because this is going to happen to you sometime in your life, if it hasn't already. And what happens to a lot of people is when they get to something that doesn't fit their understanding of how the world should work for them, and the rug's pulled out from under them, they just walk away from God, from the church, and from their faith. Instead of standing in the moment and saying, wait a second, my belief must not yet be equal to the moment. This is the question you should be asking. When your kids have gone off the rails, as some of yours have, and you are deeply shaken to your foundation, to your core, and you don't know what to do, you don't ask, why did God do this? Because God didn't do this. Human beings are fallen and rebellious. That's the deal. All of us are. What you should be asking is, okay, Lord, how do I need to grow my belief to meet this moment? How can I make it through? When your marriage is messed up, and at some point it very likely will be, not all of you, but it's going to happen to a lot of you, and at some point you find yourself asking or saying to each other, I don't know if we can go on. If that ever happens, you don't at that point go like the Gates did, well, you know, we no longer believe that we can grow together. You ask each other, what do we need to do to grow our faith, to activate our faith, to believe completely 
to meet this moment. When your career is pulled out from under you, you ask, what do I need to do to activate my faith more, to believe more completely for the challenge of this moment? I could list a thousand other things. But our question always is, how much more must I believe in Jesus to be saved not just forever, but in this moment to be rescued by his love? It's a powerful question. It's a really powerful question. Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God if you believe. So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, and I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. There's a whole lot of belief in one scripture, isn't it? And when he said this, Jesus called with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to him, take off his grave clothes and set him free. It wasn't just Martha either. It was the apostles, John eleven fourteen through 16. So then Jesus told the apostles plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad that he is and that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to them, to him. And then you remember from Easter Sunday, Then Thomas, also known as the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die for him. I started this whole series talking about Thomas. Thomas expected a patriot nationalist who would rescue his people through military conquest from the Romans. And Jesus did not fit the bill of his preconceptions. And if Martha expected a guru, a teacher, who would give her the keys to enlightenment, Jesus didn't fill that bill either. Because while they wanted, in their cases, liberty and enlightenment, Jesus was the truth and the life. And that's still true today. Until you can abandon your preconceptions about Jesus your preconceptions about what the world ought to do for you, your preconceptions about belief, about the church, it will be impossible to believe completely because there will always for all of us be another moment where our belief does not yet meet the challenge. And that's always an invitation to grow closer to Jesus. John 11, 45 45 through 47 says, Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done because the Pharisees were the protectors of preconceptions and religious traditions. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they called a meeting of the Sanhedrin to plot the demise of Jesus. So some gave up their preconceptions And they believed in Jesus, who was the ray, the truth, and the life, the resurrection. And some people held on to their preconceptions, their religious traditions, 
and sought to kill him. At the end of the day, believing completely is a matter of life and death. And if we will follow Jesus, we will have to ask ourselves again and again and again, is my belief adequate to meet the challenge of this moment? If the answer is no, then the solution is to get closer to Jesus, to understand the Word of God better, to change me. I'm not the first to say that in this story, the stone, the massive stone that was rolled away from Lazarus' tomb when everybody said, don't roll that away, Jesus kept saying, take away the stone, take away the stone, take away the stone. I'm not the first by any stretch to suggest that that stone is a real stone, but it is a metaphor in this story for anything that stands between us and complete belief. So here's your homework. What stands between you and complete belief in Jesus? What preconceptions? What failures to understand? What doubt? What stands between you and complete belief in Jesus? Because to you, this story says, take away the stone. Unbind him. Unbind her. Set them free. Father, we thank you for the freedom you give us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we thank you that you have given us more than enough faith. All the power of the resurrection you've planted within us. And now we ask that you would invite us and sometimes even challenge us to activate that faith and to grow our belief to meet the challenge of this moment. Now, Father, in truth, we live at a juncture in this world's history at a time and a place where the challenge around us, even for our culture, has never been greater. The question you're asking is not will your people reinforce their preconceptions or hide in order to protect their religious traditions, but will we, your church, activate faith in such a way that our belief will meet the challenge of this moment? May it be so. Father, take away the stone that we might unbind each other and be set free. In Jesus' name, amen. It's great to be with you. You go now and ignite passion for Jesus Christ from Metro Washington to the world. I love you. I pray for you every day. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Metro D.C. or Northern Virginia area, We would love to worship with you at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about all the incredible things happening at Columbia, go to columbiabaptist.org. That's columbiabaptist.org.